Well, today, as I said, we'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 30. And before we begin to read there, just to set a bit of the context, this is at the very end of 1 Samuel. It's an unfolding drama, uh, mostly involving David and Saul, right? So God's chosen man to lead his people, David, who fits those requirements that God had laid out generations earlier in Deuteronomy 17. And he said, someday you nation of Israel are going to want a king like the other nations. And when you do, don't get a guy who goes after the women, the gold, the chariots and horses, which represent trusting in human strength to fight battles. But instead, you are to find a king who makes a copy of this book of my law and carries it with him every day, serving as a spiritual leader for the people and, and really modeling what is it to have faith in God. And so David fits that requirement. He is called a man after God's own heart. He, he is set up in contrast to Saul, the first king of Israel, who time and again chooses to serve himself, to look out for his own interests and needs. And so at the end of Samuel now, it's the decline of Saul's kingdom and the rise of David's throne. David had been anointed as king of Israel many years earlier and he's been uh, on the run from Saul for all these years. 600 guys following him into battle. Um, last week we read about a couple of times when David had an opportunity to get vengeance against Saul who'd been hunting him down. And yet he chose to not touch the Lord's anointed and really hold his leadership, his authority with an open hand and say, God, when it's your time, I'll step up. But until that point, I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. I want you to be the one that fights my battles. you the one that defends me. And we've seen that heart in David time and again. So these last few chapters of Samuel, there's a couple of battle scenes really involving three armies. I'll just summarize a couple of those chapters and then we're going to dig into chapter 30. But uh, So David, as he now again realizes that Saul is still hunting him down, still pursuing him, flees to the region that is occupied by the Philistines. He goes to Achish, the king of Gath, that's one of the cities of the Pentopolis on, on, the, on the Mediterranean Sea on the uh, western side of uh, Israel and Judah. There's these five cities that are occupied by the Philistines. And David's like, you know, it would be safer for me to go live among the Philistines than among my own people because the current king is trying to kill me. And so he goes to Achish, the king of Gath. He pledges his loyalty. He and his 600 uh, men and their families are given this, the town of Ziklag, which is way down in the south, south part of Judah. And that's where they're living in relative safety. So now there are some things that are happening as David is there. He's still carrying out the mission of God, even while living in occupied territory. So Achish doesn't exactly know what David's doing, but he's going out and he's fighting against the Amalekites. He's fighting against the enemies of God's people. He's making sure that he wipes out everybody in those villages when they go into battle so that no report goes back to Achish of what David is doing. And so Achish begins to see David as an ally. And now when these stories start to merge is now at this point in chapter 29, the Philistines are going into battle against the armies of Saul. And so Achish is like, I trust David. He's been with us for years. He's my personal bodyguard. I'm taking David into battle against his own people. And what better way for him to prove his loyalty to me than to go and fight against Saul and his, his uh, fellow uh, Israelites. Now that he's switched over and become a Philistine, let's go. But on the day of the battle, the Philistine leaders are like, what are these Israelites doing with us? You know, Achish, we're not in support of this. 
and they and they start to reason with Achish and they say this is how David is going to like reaffirm his loyalty to Saul he's going to bring some Philistine heads with him like he did back in the the battle against Goliath and so they're not okay with taking David into battle and so Achish reluctantly sends David back to Ziklag and on this three-day journey back the Amalekites learning that the Philistines have gone into battle against Israel seize the opportunity to get some retaliation some retribution against David and they get to Ziklag before David and his men do and that's the battle scene that we're going to read about right now so let's read in chapter 30 now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negeb and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ainoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Now, the books of Samuel are in the genre of history. And whenever you read anything historical, whether it's in the Bible or elsewhere, know that there is a motive in history. It's not just a bare reporting of facts, right? Because the historian is having to selectively choose what do you report on. So in this case, there is a theological history that God is laying out in his word that is to guide his people, not just in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament and in those of us who are living in this New Testament era under the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we read this story, it's not just a, a bare reporting of facts. Like, oh, there was a battle, then there was another battle, people got killed, there was fire, people cried. No, there's some lessons that we are to learn. There's a message that God's Spirit is speaking to his people today through his word. So in this first paragraph, we're digging in. I think the first question that we should always ask as we go to God's word is, what did it mean to them? Right? It would be a, a misinterpretation of Scripture to skip that step and just go to the part of what does this mean to us. So it's important to first dig in and say, what does this mean? What did it mean to them? And then to say, now how does that apply to me? How do I enter into the story? How is God's Spirit calling me to imagine myself into the shoes of these characters whose stories are being reported here? Because these are the people of God just like we are. So here we, we see a few things right off the bat. First of all, again, the mention of the Amalekites. We've met them earlier in Samuel and even going back further in your Old Testament, back to Exodus chapter 17. The Amalekites for generations have been the enemies of God. They've been opposed to the purposes of God. They've attempted to thwart the kingdom of God. And the earliest example there in Exodus 17 is on the day that God delivers his people from the nation of Egypt the powerful day when the parting of the Red Sea occurs and God's people walk through following Moses on dry ground, who do they meet on the far banks of the Red Sea? The Amalekites. 
And right after the day that God has, has dramatically, you know, he's brought those 12 plagues against the tribes or against the nation of, of Egypt, he's led the tribes of Israel out and he's set them in the direction of the land that he has promised to them to be a blessing, to be blessed. The Amalekites meet them on the way and they oppose the plans and purposes of God. And on that day, God's, God declares himself in Exodus 17, the Amalekites are my enemies. This means war. This is a holy war. This is a divine war between the Almighty God and this one nation who really represents all the enemies of God, all those who are opposed to God's plans and purposes. We see them again here in 1 Samuel chapter 15 when God gives explicit commands to Saul and he says, you are the one who is to carry out my divine judgment against the Amalekites. And yet, as is characteristic of Saul's heart, he's unwilling to go all the way into what God has commanded. And he holds back the loot, the bounty for himself instead of giving that all to God as God has required. And so there's judgment that comes upon Saul for his disobedience. And once again, you know, really this story is very similar to Exodus 17. The Amalekites are standing in opposition to God's plans. And you know, in our lives, there are going to be people and circumstances like the Amalekites. There is a plan that God has for your life. There is an abundant, an abundant life that Jesus has come to make it possible for you to walk in. There are the promises of a good, loving, heavenly Father who calls you his son, his daughter, who adopts you into his family. That's the primary reality, but there is another reality. There is a thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. There is the father of lies. There is the serpent of old from Genesis 3 who comes in and says, did God really say? And messes with our minds and our emotions and leads us astray chasing after our own lusts, our own desires and appetites. And so that enemy from without is very real. Just like Israel and David and his men had this enemy from without, we have that same type of an enemy in our lives. Maybe you've got a circumstance in mind right now, something that's not really just within yourself, not within your sphere of those that you trust, but it's an outside attack that comes against you. And often it will blindside us. Often it seems to come at the time when we are most weak, most vulnerable, these attacks come in. David and his men, three days' journey away, and now arriving to Ziklag, weary from a long journey, three days' journey in a dry part of the world, and they arrive to Ziklag to, to see the smoke, to, to a deserted town. All their possessions are gone. All their families are gone. And so there's the enemy from without. We see in David's own heart, there's also that enemy inside, that enemy within, the, the opposition, the attack from within. Verse 6 says, David was greatly distressed. Sometimes it's our own hearts, our own emotions that are the biggest hurdle to fulfilling God's plans. And whether it's stress, discouragement, despair, hopelessness, fear, irrational fear, lying awake in bed at night, worrying about the tasks that need to be accomplished. We've all been there. So it's not just the enemy from without, it's also the enemy from within. In fact, that temptation arises from the desires in our own hearts. That's how we're led astray, God's word tells us. 
And so David is greatly distressed. But it's not just an internal thing for David. It's, it's also because of those that, are, um, that he's, he is among. It's the very people that he leads that are now turning on him. And they're beginning to blame him, accuse him. There's some angry looks in his direction. And the reality is, hurting people hurt people. And that's what David is experiencing here. He's among a group of people that he's tasked to lead. And they're in extreme anguish and pain. There's weeping, grown men weeping in this story. And you can imagine. And now they're looking at David. And there's, there's talk of stoning. So it's not just because David is personally grieving over the loss of his own family. But it's also that there's no one for him to lean on. Everyone is, is accusing him and pointing fingers at him and looking at him. And it's a, it's a very dark and bleak picture of God's people, but maybe not so far removed from our own stories. We have those enemies without. We've got those voices in our own heads, our own hearts. And then at times there's even attack and opposition from people that we are in relationship with. The, the bitterness in soul that we see here in verse six, it says, the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. We already knew that about this group of people. When David assembled this motley crew in, Genesis, or in, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 22, there, there were some descriptors used of this group of 600 men. They were, they were bitter in soul. They were discontent. You know, D- David is going out and picking a group of people that, that you know, now their bitterness in soul is being directed toward him in this, in this moment of great despair and grief. What do you do when you face attacks from without, from within, and from right around you? You know, well, David didn't retaliate. He didn't threaten to pick up stones and stone the, the people around him that were, that were turning on him. He didn't plead his own case. He had the reality, the expression of distress. He's grieving. And yet that last phrase is so important here in this paragraph. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Really, the beginning of that clause, the beginning of verse 6, David was greatly distressed, dot, 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 but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. So despite the circumstances, despite the people around him, despite his own thoughts and emotions, his source of strength, as always, was in the Lord his God. I think really the, the theological challenge to us as we're reading this historical narrative today, we're saying, what did this mean to them and what does it mean to us? There's a question of where we base our identity. Do we base our identity in pleasant circumstances? You know, as long as Ziklag is prospering and the wives and the children are happily in the homes and the crops are growing and the livestock are fattening up, then... Our identity is secure. We can move forward with peace and with joy and with hope. You know, as long as the finances are in order and the career is progressing and we have health in our bodies and we're amassing more possessions than we had last year, if our identity is in those circumstances, that's a shaky place to put our hope. The bad news is circumstances change. 
fact, Jesus, as I quoted, he says, in this world you will have trouble. So if that is where we've placed our hope, if that's where our identity is, is in our circumstances, that's a very shaky foundation. One day a nation of, the nation of Amalek will come and bring devastation and our circumstances will change and those opportunities will dry up and there will be nothing but pain. So what if we look within? What if our, our identity is based in our own sense of self, self-worth, inner peace, tranquility? What if we really internalize this and, and look for ways of just having happiness within us despite life circumstances? A lot of people in our world doing that today. Meditation, um, looking for ways to go, go out in nature and just kind of clear your head and get away from, from all the circumstances of life. Root your identity within yourself, you know? How's that working out for you? The problem is human emotions are fickle. They change, they fluctuate, and they're so closely tied to circumstances that you might start down that path. It's not going to get you to a, a sure footing. Don't root your identity within your own favorable emotions. What about in the relationships around you? You know, life circumstances press in. Emotions are up and down depending on those circumstances. But what about the people that you love the most? You know, invest in your family. Spend time with those that you love. Be defined by those relationships with others. Camaraderie, loyalty, devotion, friendship. bad news in that path as well. If that's the core of your identity, if you are connected to all the other people around you as the defining base layer of your identity and who you are, that's not a sure footing either because people will let you down. You'll let one another down. Those closest to you will give in to the circumstances or the emotions that they're experiencing. There'll be days when they're picking up stones and looking at you with an angry look on their face because of circumstances they're facing. People will let you down. So David is looking and and all of these spheres are falling down around him and really it's that moment of decision where he's saying, where is my hope? Where is my strength? Where is that sure footing? In a world of sinking sand, where is the solid rock? And until our identity is rooted in Jesus, we'll never be able to truly enter into healthy connections and relationships with other people. We'll always be stuck to one another in unhealthy ways, dependent and codependent. But once we, the beauty of the body of Christ is once we as individuals root our identity firmly in him and say he is our strength, he is our hope, he's my joy, he's my strength, no matter the circumstances, no matter my emotions, no matter... What's going on around me, my hope is in him. And then you get a band of people that are each saying that, you can now connect in healthy ways. You can be truly brothers and sisters in Christ. You can be members of the body of Christ. As long as he's the head, then we each have a function to play and it's all for his glory and the body of Christ is edified and built up. And so David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. How did he do that? By changing his circumstances? By just kind of, you know, pulling himself up by his own bootstraps emotionally? Mind over matter kind of thing? No? 
we're going to see that what David did to strengthen himself in the Lord, his God, is that he inquired of the Lord through prayer. And he just went to God and said, God, here's what's going on. I give it to you. And so in verse 7, it says, David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out, and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Bezor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Bezor. And this is the beginning of God now answering that prayer as David is saying, God, what should I do? Where should I go? Should I pursue? Should I go up after the Amalekites who have just seized all of our possessions and our loved ones? Are you leading me in this path? And God, or he goes to a priest. He goes to the priest of God's people, Abiathar, The ephod is a priestly garment. There's a way of inquiring of the Lord and David gets a yes answer from God. Yes, you are to go. Yes, I'm going before you. Yes, I'm sending you out. Go in my strength. Be assured that I am with you. And so David is getting some direction. He asks God, God, what should I do? And God answers. This is not always the case. This has not always been the case for David. You know, there was a moment many years earlier when a priest of the Lord showed up at his dad's house and anointed David as the next king of Israel. And yet, there were many years of waiting and trusting and saying, God, in your time, and all along the way, there was trouble and hardship that David encountered as Saul tried to spear him to the wall, as Saul pursued him in the wilderness, as he had to go into hiding, even among the enemies, the Philistines. And in those moments, I'm sure David prayed prayed a similar prayer. Where are you, God? In fact, I know he did. Read the Psalms. You hear his heart cry in those laments. How long, O Lord? And it's okay to pray those prayers of lament as well. Even in those prayers of lament, there is a trust in God and there's a, that guttural cry that says, God, I don't know the answer. Give me the strength to endure another day. On this day, God answered quickly. David said, God, we, we are grieving, we're hurting, there's distress, there's mutiny. Our wives and sons and daughters have been dragged off by our enemy. God, are you going to go with us into battle? Are you sending us out? And God answers, yes. He's directing the steps of his faithful servant. He's showing the way to go. He's inquiring of the Lord. The method that David is using to inquire of the Lord is very different. It's a stark contrast to Saul's approach in chapter 28. Chapter 28, just a couple chapters before, Saul is wanting direction from God as well. And yet at this point, God has rejected him as king. And so what does Saul do? He turns to a forbidden source. He goes to the medium at Endor, a a witch who practices divination, necromancy. There's different kinds of these uh, evil practices for, you know, like today we have Ouija boards. I would say it's in the same kind of a category where you're instead of tapping into the sovereign 
God and his knowledge in prayer and inquiring of him, looking to evil spirits to guide and to direct. And so this, this witch of Endor, this medium, Saul so, shows up at her house and he says, I'd like you to conjure up someone from the grave because I need to hear some direction of where I'm to go. And it's really a bizarre story in, the, in chapter 28 because the person that comes back from the dead to consult with Saul is Samuel, the prophet who has died. And really Samuel's message from beyond the grave is the exact same message that he preached before he died. Saul, you're in big trouble. You're going to die, and so are your sons. You're going to lose. And so God even speaks through this very forbidden and negative and evil practice to once again deliver judgment to, to Saul. But what a contrast as Saul is going in all the wrong places to evil spirits to guide him in the path that he should go and David who inquires of the Lord. You know, there are many opportunities for us to go looking for answers in the wrong places. We turn to social media. We turn to the opinions of our friends. We do a Google search. And we're wasting our time and even going to forbidden areas to seek direction. When the author of all life makes himself available to us, the God who speaks and reveals himself to us, is just waiting for us to inquire of him, to strengthen ourselves in him, to go to him in prayer. And so David, once again, is modeling that heart after God as he goes to the Lord in prayer, as he seeks his will and his direction. And God says, go. And so they've been now three days uh, journey from the Philistine camp back to their, their town of Ziklag. They're worn out. Of the 600 guys, 200 of them say, we can't take another step. We're exhausted, we're depleted physically and emotionally. We can't go on. And David says that's okay because there, there, there are possessions, there's baggage that needs to be guarded and we can travel, the rest of us, the other 400 can go into battle more nimbly without these extra encumbrances. And so 200 of you that are too worn out, too tired to fight, because now we have to go into the desert and we've got to move. You know, our wives and sons and daughters are being dragged off by an enemy army. We've got to get going now into the desert to chase down these Amalekites. 400 of us had the strength to go. 200 stay here and guard the possessions. That's going to be important at the end of this chapter. And already we've seen God leading. He's answered this time of prayer. And then he brings further guidance through a person that he brings into David's path that brings confirmation of what God has already spoken. Verse 11. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate. Hmm, what a coincidence. They happened to find an Egyptian out in the open country. Tongue in cheek. They gave him water to drink. They gave him a piece of a cake of figs, two clusters of raisins. When he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? He said, coincidentally, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite. Who are the enemies that have ransacked Ziklag and dragged off 
the wives and sons and daughters, it's the Amalekites, and they just happen to encounter a slave of an Amalekite wandering around out in the desert. I'm a servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. Now, if in the earlier account when we were reading about how the Amalekites treated the inhabitants of Ziklag, and maybe you had a little glimmer of hope, oh, maybe these are nice marauders. You know, they didn't kill anyone. This should dispel any of those notions in your mind, right? These are brutal Amalekites who deal with brutality toward their slaves. And the only reason that they've spared the women and children is because they're part of the loot. These are now possessions who will be treated in the same way as this Egyptian who, because he's sick, is left to die in the desert. Verse 14, We had made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb and we burned Ziklag with fire. David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? He said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. So God, who answered with confirmation, Yes, you are to go after the Amalekites, now sends a person, and, and not a coincidence at all, as I was sarcastically saying, but definitely a divine, sovereign appointment where God is bringing a very unlikely person. You know, it's not common that in Judah you're going to encounter an Egyptian wandering around alone out in the wilderness, barely alive. And then you bring him, where are you from? Now that we've given you some refreshment, where are you from? Oh, I just happen to be a slave of the Amalekites who just burned your hometown. Oh, do you happen to know where they are? Oh, yeah, I can take you there. Is that God at work or what? David, who inquired of the Lord, now not only is he getting that direction as God leads him and he's stepping out, but God brings that confirmation through the voices of other people that he brings into your path. Not even a believer. And it's no coincidence whatsoever that God is speaking through this Egyptian slave of the Amalekites and saying God is going to use me for his purposes to direct you in the steps that you're to go. Don't be surprised if when you are in a moment of despair and seeking direction and there's been attacks from without and from within and from around you and you call out to God and you inquire of him that as he leads and guides and you begin to take those steps of obedience, he will bring people into your path to affirm and confirm what he has already spoken. That's the beauty of God's leading and it will come from unlikely sources. That's the joy of this life of faith where we just trust in him and then see those extraordinary ways that he speaks and moves. How is he going to lead you in the next step as you go to him in prayer, as he leads you by his spirit, as he reveals the truth to you through his word, and you're, you're doing your devotions, and you just happen to come across a passage that is directly applicable to exactly what you're facing and God just smacks you upside the head and says, are you paying attention? And as you spend time with him, he delights in guiding us and directing our steps. There's joy, there's excitement in this life of faith. Even though the circumstances can be bleak at times and are, 
God is leading and guiding. He leads through opportunities and through closed doors. And he brings confirmation through people that he brings into our path. Two psalms have this element of prayer and trust. I mean, there are multiple, but I'll just highlight two. Psalm 143, verse 8 says, Let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love, for I have put my trust in you. Show me the way I should go, for to you I entrust my life. That's a great prayer from Psalm 143. And when you're in those dark times and you're inquiring of the Lord, go to the Psalms. Take, take a prayer right out of the Psalms and say, God, today I'm getting up in the morning. And I need the word of your unfailing love. God, today I pray, show me the way I should go. I am entrusting to you my life. Or you could pray the prayer of Psalm 25 that says, show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God my Savior and my hope is in you all day long. What a beautiful prayer. To pray even every day and say, God, today I'm, tr- I'm trusting in you. I, I'm not going to take the path that my heart desires. I'm not going to take the path that my brain selects. I'm not going to take the path of popular opinion. I want you to show me the way that I am to go and then give me the strength to walk in it. And he will answer that prayer and he'll guide his people. So on this journey, as God is guiding and leading and answering and bringing confirmation, David is very aware that it is God who provides. And he has an opportunity now at the end of this story to drive that lesson home to those who are following him. It's God who provides. It's God who is our strength. It's God who grants the victory. So in verse 16, now as as the Egyptian brings them down to the Amalekites, when he, the Egyptian, had taken David down to, the, to where the Amalekites were camped out, behold, they were spread abroad all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped, escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. How many warriors did David bring into battle with him? Anybody who's really good at math, what's 600 minus 200? Okay, thank you. I I was going to have to Google that. So David, you know, there were 600 men with David. 200 were too tired to go on after the three days journey. 400 went into pursuit. and, And the narrative says they killed all the Amalekites. Except for just the, like the 400 guys that got away on camel. How many of them were there? If the 400 that are left are an insignificant number to kind of tack on as an afterthought, what a dramatic example of God fighting the battles for his people. It's 400 against who knows how many. And there's only 400 survivors of Amalek left after this battle. And verse 18, David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. And David rescued his two wives Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds and the people that drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. 
there's already a little bit of a problem emerging in the story, in that, in that phrase, in that declaration. There's a little bit of a misplaced understanding of how God works and how God works as he uses people in his story of what he's accomplishing in his kingdom. And there's a little bit of hero worship that's happening here. The people are looking at all the goods, all the stuff. They're celebrating. They're happy. This is David's spoil. And David's going to have to drive a lesson home. No, this is the Lord's spoil. He's the one who fights. He's the one that defends. He's the one that provides. He's the giver of all good things. And now you see it really take a dark turn in verse 21. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Bezor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we've recovered except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. Really, there's a moment of decision here where this could have taken a dark turn. And this is, this is that slippery path toward exactly what God had warned about back in Deuteron- Deuteronomy 17. Don't get a king who is stuck on himself, who's trusting in his own arm to defend and to go before the armies in battle. Pick a king whose central focus is serving as a spiritual leader of my people, who remind the people that the Lord God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, is the giver of all good things. Who will, who will teach them that doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. And then the reminder, praise him all you creatures down here below. And any of us that are in that realm of created are here together. There's one creator, all the rest of us are on that other plane of reality. We need that reminder. On days when we get puffed up, we get pretty confident in our own abilities, maybe we start propping up another human that we admire and say, man, aren't they awesome There is a healthy way of celebrating the uniquenesses, the diversity, the strengths, the gifts without turning our eyes from God and beginning to worship the created. And so David has to bring that harsh reminder to his people, no, we're not going to operate this way. This is not the organizational, cultural DNA that we're going to foster here. We're going to keep our eyes focused on God. We're going to re- receive the blessings from him and share them liberally with all. Not start a hierarchy of those that are equal and then those who are a little bit more equal. Those who deserve a little bit greater measure. And David starts a precedent. It becomes law. He says, this is how we are going to operate going forward where those that are warriors are just as important as those who are guards and those who protect. And it goes even a step further as now that gratitude 
that thanksgiving, that awareness that God is the God who provides is now demonstrated through generosity. So the, the thanksgiving to God is, is worked out in generosity towards others, even those who are not there on the battle day. Verse 26. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. And it lists all of the cities in, in that region of Judah where, where gifts are now shared and given out. And at the very end, we get a summary of all those locations. It says, all the places where David and his men had roamed. And so the, the journeys that they've been on, they're now, it's, it's now these, these gifts are arriving and being dispersed, the flocks, the herds, the loot of the Amalekites, probably some of the Philistine loot mixed in because we found out that the Amalekites went into war against, against the Philistines as well. These gifts are being spread out throughout the region of Judah. One purpose is, is because David's kingship is emerging and this is going to come into play at the beginning of 2 Samuel as Judah is the, the first region of Israel that recognizes him as their king. But I think, I think the primary reason for this gener generous act is to spread the good news that God is the God that leads. Our God is the God who, who strengthens us for battle. That when the attacks come, he's the one that fights our battles for us. Our God is the God who guides and, and leads. And when we inquire of him, he shows us the way we should go and brings confirmation. Our God is the one who provides what we need. The giver of good things. So let's give thanks to him and let's be generous with the blessings that he's poured out. And today I think that really there's a link in this story as, as I'm praying about this, as I'm saying, God, what are you speaking to me and to my family and to our church through this story in 1 Samuel 30? I'd say there's a definite link between discontentment and stinginess on the one hand or gratitude and generosity on the other. And really, if we are to have that heart after God like David did, we need to get to that place where we say, God, we rejoice even in our suffering because we know that you go before us and we can come to you to inquire of you, to trust that you will lead us and that, Lord, when we are granted victory by your hand, it won't be because of our own strength. Even though you do use people like us to accomplish your kingdom purposes, it's because of your glory and your good plan and your blessings, and so we then become conduits through which that blessing can flow as we give thanks, and then we hold those possessions loosely, and we share them, and that's the picture that we see in the New Testament church as well. At the beginning of the book of Acts, they had everything in common, and they brought what they had, and they pooled it together, and they said, you know, it's not about amassing treasures in, in this life where moth and, and rust corrupt and thieves break in and steal. We are those people who are looking to the end of time when the king comes to fully establish his kingdom and we're living in light of that reality today. We set our affections on things above. We store up treasures in heaven instead of here on earth. And that allows us to interact with the possessions, the resources of this life in an entirely different way than what our world has. Could we just close today with a prayer of thanksgiving and get our hearts in that place in obedience as God, by his word, is speaking to us today? Why don't we stand together and give thanks to him no matter what circumstances we're in. 
Let's fix our eyes upon him today. God, today we do reaffirm our trust in you. It's so easy to get distracted by the circumstances of this life. And Lord, there are painful realities right here in this room. Stressors, attacks from without, fear and doubt, opposition, discontentment, even sabotage. But Lord, when our hearts are distressed, we, we want to be like King David. And instead of looking to those circumstances or to our own abilities, we choose today to inquire of you and to pray that simple prayer, God, which way should we go? So I pray, God, that you would be the one who gives direction, the one that provides. I pray for someone today that you have already spoken to and you've given them some clarity as to that next step. And they're beginning to take those steps of obedience. That, Lord, this week you would bring someone to affirm and confirm what you've already spoken. Lord, that that it would be clear that you are the one who is leading and guiding. And then, Lord, we do take time right now to just give you thanks. Lord, at times we overlook the greatest blessings in this life. We We as men take our wives for granted. Maybe it takes a tragedy like what we've read about here in 1 Samuel 30 to remind us how precious our wives are, what a gift they are from you. At times, Lord, we overlook our children. We see them as another inconvenience or task in this day that gets in the way of our own desires and needs and wants. But Lord, you you say in the book of Joel that in the last days you will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. And Lord, we pray that you would do that within our own church, that we would look at the precious blessings that you've given to us as moms and dads as gifts from you and to give you thanks and praise. Lord, even the the material possessions that we have, help us to see them in proper perspective. Lord, not as the the work of our hands, not as, as our spoils, as if we own the cattle on a thousand hills. But Lord, with humility to give you thanks for the blessings that we have, the provision, the next meal, big pots full of chili waiting for us today, plenty of food for everyone here. And we don't take that for granted, but Lord, we pray that today as we give you thanks, we would then turn that into generosity toward others, sharing the blessings that you've given to us, sharing all good things with others, recognizing that you are the giver of all things. Lord, help us, like Paul, to discover the secret of being content in any circumstances, whether we have much or little. Lord, that our eyes are fixed upon you. We give you thanks today, O God of our strength, O God who directs our steps, our God who provides. We give you thanks today. We lift our eyes to you. In Jesus' name, amen.